You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful in your mercies that you brought us together on this Lord's Day. Thank you for uh, the word that we've heard already and the celebration of your grace and your mysteries and the sacrament. And now we ask, O Lord, that in this hour you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to what you would teach us in the book of Genesis. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Come on in, friends. I think we're still toward the beginning of Genesis. If you remember last week, we talked a little bit about um, the ways in which um, sin's presence after the fall in Genesis 3 began, began to compound itself. Um, so, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, it began with uh, Cain and the murder of his brother. And then when we get to the end of uh, Genesis chapter 4, we have Lamech's boasting in the murder of Someone else. So you kind of move from um, you move from Cain in a recognition of guilt to Lamech in a recognition of of his own, uh, I guess, power and, and his act of, of murder. Uh, then then we get to chapter six and seven, mainly into chapter six, where we begin the scene of the flood and Noah. In many respects, in the book of Genesis especially the primeval history, Noah is, is a new Adam figure. He's portrayed as righteous and exemplary. So uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 begins, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Those, those particular descriptions of Noah are about as, about as high-flying as one can find as a, as a description, as a predication of his, of his, um, of his being marked out as, again, the new Adam. He was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Uh, but the earth, it says, verse 11, was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Um, it's, it's worth at least thinking about the importance of that term in the book of Genesis and really throughout the minor prophets as well. We heard this today in the sermon from the book of Amos. I, I tease my students, you know, if you're looking for, um, you know, uplifting light beach reading, uh, you know, leave Amos at home. You know, don't, don't take Amos with you. Um, so we saw something about, you know, the prophetic word today, the importance of the, of the nature um, and, the, and the consequences of violence in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Hebrew term for that is a term that all of you will know. You've heard it in the news. Um, Hamas uh, is the Hebrew term for violence. Um, and uh, this is, by the way, in the book of Micah, one of the key motivating factors of Micah's prophetic ministry. Those who are in positions of power are executing Hamas against those that are in positions of weakness. Um, violence um, is, th- is especially pointed out here within the primeval history as that which gets God's attention. And so this is what happens in verse 12. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to, I'm going to end this, uh, this generation here and we're going to start all over. 
And what happens in this scene here in the book of Genesis? Well, um, even Noah, after the ark and the scene of the ark, cannot escape the original narrative from Adam. Why? What happens? Well, you, of course, know the, know the Noah story. And, and if you don't know it, go to any nursery in a Baptist church across Birmingham and it'll be on a wall somewhere. I've, I've always thought it's kind of bizarre um, that it's the Noah scene that becomes the kind of um, cute, cuddly scene for children in their nurseries. Um, it's, it's horrifying what's going on in Noah. Um, I think I've heard one of the one of our clergy around here even mentioned in a sermon. But I mean, you can imagine just from the narrative itself that here you are on an ark. This is not an era of this is not the new kingdom on the ark. I mean, this is still the animal kingdom at odds with humanity. You know, and there they are on, I don't know, level three of the ark with, hand, with uh, Noah's family on level two. I mean, that, that had, I'm not sure you slept well knowing there was a lion not too far away, right? Um, but it's all cuddly for kids. It's fine. Um, and the scene's horrific. I mean, you have, you have the door closing. You have people who are trying to get onto the ark. And this is, I think, the important point to note especially with the, the, the language that's used uh, in the text, what you have going on in the flood narrative is the undoing of creation. What, what did God do when He created the world? By the power of His Word, He subdued those forces that if let go of, would turn all the created world into chaos. Think the deep. Uh, think the eternal rivers thought about that, and frankly, it was a good reminder today. I've been in Amos a lot in my life, actually. Uh, But hearing, let justice roll down like rivers. We know that, I guess, from the beauty of, say, like a Martin Luther King Jr. speech, and rightly so. I mean, it's a beautiful phrase. That's what we're looking for. But rivers, is that's again, it hit me today. That's never positive in the Bible. Being swept up in a river is not a, a, you know, a 1980s Mountain Dew commercial. Um, you remember those? Like it was all just being a river of the Mountain Dew. I remember that as a kid being really intrigued by that. Um, that the, no, no, no one in the Old Testament thought about going to the river and getting caught in the currents, and that would be fun. You know, that's it's not. Um, so here you have in the flood narratives, it's not just the rain that comes down. You also remember what happens, right? The deep comes up. Um, those rivers, and think about kind of an ancient Near Eastern cosmology, those rivers that have been subdued, that basically flow through the channels of the foundations of the earth that hold our world up, it's God's Word that subdues all of that. It's God's Word that subdues um, the Caribbean Sea and, and I mean, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea from engulfing um, Florida. God's word that, that keeps these things in order. And what happens in the flood narrative is the reversal of that. God removes the power of his effective word to keep these things in order. And then it, and he unleashes it again to go back to chaos. So, so, so what's the narrative here? We've gone from cosmic, from chaos. God looked over the deep and he spoke to it to then bring it into order. So from chaos to cosmos, Back to the flood narrative where we go uh, to chaos again. And there's Noah and his family out on the ark. And then uh, verse 8, I want you to remember this, because if we get to the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah story today, which that's a tall order, but I'm going to try. 
Now, if you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to remember this terminology. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. You know, God makes a covenant with Noah and with the whole of the world. That's what the rainbow indicates, right? God makes a covenant. This is the first covenant formula in the Bible. And what, what is a covenant? It's a, it's a pact that's made between those that are not in the same family. I think that's a kind of an important way of understanding covenants in the Old Testament. People that were within the same family, there was naturally built in a kind of patriarchal protective order. That's why it was so important, especially in that world, for a woman to have a husband. Um, or if her husband had died, for her to have children, male children of a certain age that can then protect her. Um, you, when you were a part of a family that had a kind of male head, think of that as, I don't know, small chieftains. You know, I would love for that to be the case in my house, kind of king, but it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, small chieftains over their own abode, right? I mean, that, that's how, how it worked there. Um, and so you, within families, you were protected. Um, what is a covenant? A covenant is a kind of protective bond that are made between those that are not of the same family. Um, that's why the covenants had to be made so that there's a, they move into a mutual agreement of um, bilateral protection and care for one another. And of course we know from an Old Testament perspective that the, the covenant that God makes with the creation, the covenant that God makes with whomever, is not a bilateral in the sense of equal partners. What you have is God is a kind of unilateral covenant maker that requires obligations from those that he enters into covenant with. But at the end of the day, read the prophetic literature, God will maintain his covenant with his people at all costs. And when we get to the gospel, we see, of course, that cost is ultimately the cost of his own self and his own son. Now, that's how radically committed God is to his covenant with his people. But the first covenant is made with Noah. Um, that he gives to Noah that's for all of humanity. I'll never do this again. Um, I'll never bring this kind of massive global destruction again um, to, to the world. So God remembered Noah. And that's covenantal language. And of course, God doesn't forget anything. Um, this means that God is about to move into salvific action. So whenever you see that language in the Bible, it's all over the Psalms, it's all over the prophets, it's all over the, the law. Whenever you see the language of God remembering something, um, the way in which I, the illustration that kind of pops to my mind are the two beavers that are describing um, Aslan in uh, the, some of those early scenes in the, the Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, when, the, when the children ask about um Aslan or something, and, and the, the beavers say, it's winter now, but spring is coming. Why? Because Aslan is on the move, right? Um, it hasn't happened yet, but he's, a, he's moving, and his salvific work is about to spring on us. That's what God remembering is about. He's about to move into salvific action. He's going to do that for Noah. And how does he do it? Well, of course, you know the story. And again, to kind of bring this full circle, unfortunately, Noah cannot escape the original narrative of, of Adam's sin. What happens? The water subsides. They then are there um, on the mountain. And what do they do? Well, they do, I guess, what anyone uh, worth their salt would do in the ancient world. They plant some vineyards so that they can make some wine. Um, and, and then, and then, as often as the case, even in our world, it goes poorly, right? Um, the wine leads to a scene of some decadence, um, some sinfulness. His children 
uh, see him in his nakedness, which was in his shame. And now we see again a link to Noah's nakedness back to Genesis chapter 3. You see how things are kind of recycling here throughout? Um, what happens in Genesis chapter 3? After they sin, they recognize that they are naked. They recognize that they're not clothed. There was a, I mean, there's something beautiful about that innocence. Um, which even with original sin, you know, I have a, a three-year-old little girl who would be happy to walk in the front yard um, naked if we allowed her to. Wouldn't think twice about it, right? I mean, there's something about as you come into the knowledge of your state and who you really are, that all of a sudden your comfortableness with your nakedness in public becomes, unless you're weird, um, becomes, uh, you know, troublesome. Well, that's what's happening here. They saw their nakedness. They knew that they were naked. And how do we end the story with Noah? He's naked and it, and he's ashamed. His children see him. It's it's a, it's a it's an awful cycle. Um, chapter six, verse twelve talks about the world being corrupt. We see that in chapter one, verse thirty-one. And then, of course, the primeval history ends with Genesis chapter eleven, which we won't spend a lot of time with. But you know what happens in Genesis chapter eleven? The pride of humanity in the Tower of Babel is at play. Um, the chaos of Babel. The languages that are now being dispersed, the chaos at Babel now lends itself and sets you up for this narratival question. So what next? So Genesis 1, chapter 11 emphasizes God as creator. It emphasizes the fact that God and his creative activity is unlike any other God within the ancient Near Eastern panoply of gods. He's, he's not in any kind of divine cosmic struggle with other deities to subdue them. He just speaks by the power of his word. He brings um, order to chaos. And yet sin is entered into the world. It gives us an understanding of humanity. Sin enters into the world and it wreaks its, its havoc from beginning to end as it compounds on itself, building to the Tower of Babel scene. And as the credits begin to roll, I guess, in the primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11, the question is then before us, well, what is God going to do now? Well, what are we going to do in the face of the fact that the nations set themselves up over against their Creator and the nations are turned in on themselves in such a way that they are continuing to eat themselves. They are continuing to um, turn in on themselves such that they cannot escape that vortex of sin and sin's compounding presence. What's God going to do? Well, you turn the page to Genesis chapter 12. And it's important, I think, to keep all this cosmic imagery before you as you move into the Abrahamic narratives. Right? So then we move to Genesis chapter 12. I want to say something about this. I learned this from um, Gerhard von Rod, who I've got a lot of time for him. I've often thought if I got a German dog, I think I would name it von Rod. Um, but as you move into this, into Genesis chapter 12 and the call from Abraham, I want you to make a note. Here you see, as you move from the table of nations in Genesis chapter 11 into the narrative of Genesis chapter 12, that Israel gives a non-mythological account of her origin. This is important. In other words, it's very difficult for you to see any tracing of a direct lineage, say, from Noah... Uh, to Abraham. The only relation at all to Israel in the table of nations is possibly Genesis chapter 10 with a fellow named Aparkshad. 
which is a completely neutral name for Israel's faith and her sacred history. I imagine for some of you, hearing a parkshad this morning was maybe your first time. I get to remind myself about a parkshad every time I lecture on Genesis, and then I forget about him. In other words, there's no direct line from a primeval time to God's time with Abraham. This, this is what Von Rod says. When Israel looked back from Abraham, there was a decisive break in the line to the primeval beginning to the table of nations. That is to say, Israel looked at herself in the midst of the international world without any illusion, and quite unmythically. In other words, they... Uh, uh, I told you about a toilet book that I have at the house last week. I might as well do it again this week. I apologize. Got Mary Beard's History of Rome um, as well, which is, uh, I haven't read all of it, but it is a great read um, that gives you a kind of history of Rome in a way that's accessible for for someone, you know, for for us who don't don't know sort of the classical world, at least for me. and you, you know, of course, that Rome had multiple mythical accounts of her origins. I mean, think about what Rome has as a, as a description, a kind of etiology of her beginnings. There's two of them. The one is the famous story about Romulus and Remus. Remember that? Um, who were born to the she-wolf. By the way, that sort of Latin term for she-wolf has a, can have a double entendre to it with, as prostitute. Um, some think that that's, you know, that, that might, but, but if you look at coins from the first century BC and the first century AD uh, world of Rome, what you'll find are often depictions of a, of a wolf there. Again, the mythical past of Rome's beginnings is a part of her current history and self-understanding. They have that kind of mythological account. Um, a wolf gave birth to these twins, Romulus and Remus. It's the part of the story that Cicero was very keen on, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that they were very happy about in their story. But of course, you know, Romulus kills Remus in an act of fatricide, and then he becomes, of course, the founding uh, patron of the city of, of Rome. That's one account. So there's got one mythical account. Well, guess what? There's another mythical account that maybe some of you had to read, you know, in in Western Civilization 101 in college, and that's Virgil's Aeneid. Here's Aeneas, who was one of the fighters in the Great Trojan Wars, and gets lost at sea, and then ends up landing in this area, and and establishes uh, establishes Rome. So you have two competing um, mythical accounts of Rome's origins. Greece had that. Um, Israel did not. That's what's interesting. There isn't this kind of mythological account that traces Abraham and his lineage all the way through to this kind of, I don't know, smoky, hazy past where the wolf gives birth to... It doesn't have that. You just have Abraham. So when you get into the story of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12, and I think Genesis chapter 12 is near the heart of the Old Testament's theological subject matter. Let's look at these first few verses. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And now we have the introduction, I think, of some the three major themes of Genesis chapter 12 and following and really the whole of the Pentateuch. What are these three major themes? Seed, offspring, land, and relationship. Those are the three major themes that kind of interlock all throughout the Pentateuch. Seed, namely an offspring, a people. 
a land. God's going to give the people of Israel a place to be. Why? Think about Exodus chapter 4. So that they might worship me. And then what's the third aspect is relationship. And that's this covenantal engagement that God has with His people. He's going to engage them in a long-term relationship that's going to be troubled from beginning to end. So here we have it. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Three of the most controversial verses in Old Testament scholarship right now, I would say. Because there are, and I think this is wrong, but I just want to let you know that this reading is out there. Um, there are several scholars, and scholars that I respect a great deal, who read Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 in this way. And in you, all the families of the earth will bless themselves. It's a kind of Hebrew phraseology. In other words, we understand Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and I think the Christian tradition, and frankly the Jewish tradition as a whole, has understood Genesis 12, 1 through 3 as having a kind of missional side to it. In other words, it's through the seed and the offspring of Abraham that God is going to bless all the nations. So you have, if you can think of it as a kind of a, 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 a concentric circles that are building out um, from Abraham and his offspring who are then going to be the unique instruments by which God blesses the whole world. That's how Paul reads this in the book of Galatians. That's how we would see the gospel writers thinking about Jesus as the sort of outcome of the Abrahamic promise. And I, and I think that's the right reading. Uh, but there are those who will argue that that's not what's being claimed here. There's no sort of missional focus. Namely, it's going something like this. By your, your name, all the families of the earth or all the inhabitants of the earth will bless themselves. So in other words, we think about uh, something like this. Um, uh, may your children be blessed like Abraham has been blessed. In other words, Abraham's name would be the, would be the means by which people would bless themselves. Um, uh, say you, you, you uh, meet somebody who's got children that have all grown up and, and they're hashtag adulting. I found out that's a new thing out there, by the way. Um, I, I read a piece on this in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, paid my bills on time. Hashtag adulting. Uh, this, this is a real thing. Um, you know, so let's say that you're, you know, you have children, uh, you, so you know somebody that has children and they're all hashtag adulting. It's my, my prayer for my kids. Um, and you think, boy, may, may your kid, or may my kids be like your kids. That kind of, it's that kind of, we're, we're blessing ourselves. We're hoping for blessing based on the goodness that we see in somebody else as a kind of exemplar of the kind of blessing that we hope to experience as well. That, that's the, the way in which these scholars are, are reading Genesis 12.3. Um, and, and what's underneath that? What, what's the impetus of that? Well, the impetus is to understand that Israel's election, and I'm sympathetic to this, by the way, Israel's election is not merely instrumental. In other words, God doesn't elect Abraham and his offspring just so that they will do something. Um, God elects them because He sets His affection on them irrespective of their instrumentality and what they do. By the way, that's something you'll find in Paul's logic as well in Romans 9-11. to The gifts and calling of God are without revocation. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Israel. Um, God's chosen people. 
So I affirm that. I mean, I think that's instinctually right, but I don't think that's what's being claimed here. Um, yeah. Well, it's not self-evident in the Hebrew, um, in the sense that there are some Hebrew form. I don't want to bore you with this, but the Hebrew form I think here is a is a um, uh, nephal. I mean, it's a hephil, but it only shows up in this nephal, which basically means it, it tends to be understood as a passive. They will bless themselves, whereas I think the proper reading is an active reading. They will be blessed, and there's instrumentality. But I will say that there, it is a difficult text in the original. It's not, it's not self-evident in that way, but I do think the lexical arguments do lend, but, but I'm sure you're not thinking lexically. Why do you think it's self-evident? I'm looking at the New Testament. Yeah, 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 right. Well, these are, I mean, these are scholars who would think that... We have the benefit now. Yes, fair enough. And you can obviously tell that that, that particular line of reasoning has a pretty big impact on the way in which I think interpretively about the Old Testament. Um, that, that's, that's not an instinct that scholars, by and large, will have. In other words, whatever Paul's reading is or Matthew's reading, you know, will you know, let let them have their reading. But that's not necessarily normative in any way, I think. And 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 a lot of these scholars are Jewish scholars. John Levinson up at Harvard. Again, I I read anything Levinson writes. If he writes it, I'm going to read it. Um, but he's he's a proponent of that reading that I'm I'm suggesting is off. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, it does. And I think that's part of what's driving this concern as well. Um, so, for example, if you want to find a good, uh, a, a, an interesting interaction on this, um, John Levinson's book that I think Princeton Press published entitled Abraham's Children. Um, and it's all built off of sort of thinking through the three classic monotheistic faiths and how they understand their relationship to Abraham. But that, this is, this certainly has a political dynamic today to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, coffee. This is maybe a little bit more broader based, but does the day of Pentecost undo the effects of the Tower of Babel? That's my understanding. I mean, I think, you know, you, um, People will often complain about our lectionary, and I, I, I can complain about it with the best of them. Um, you know, I mean, there's certain, I mean, if you see the kind of redactive activity that can go on in, some, in our lectionary cycle at times and the verses that they leave out, I, I don't always get giddy about it. That's why I think lectionary preaching really needs the kind of thing that we're doing in here as well, sort of close readings of text. But, but with that said, this is one place where I think the lectionary gets it really well. Um, because the Pentecost readings that we have, um, if you look in our in our lectionary cycle, for all years, I think, A, B, and C, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, the Tower of Babel is the Old Testament reading on offer the day that you read um, Acts 2 as well. So, in other words, the lectionary is helping us see a kind of interpretive link between the Tower of Babel and the day of Pentecost. So I think that is certainly the case. I, if my memory serves me correctly, I think I preached a sermon on that at one point. Um, trying to show how I, th- I, th- I think the day of Pentecost is a kind of adumbration of the overturning of the Tower of Babel. I'm, I'm going to do, th- do this Tower of Babel thing my way, God's saying. Um, but, that, that, but that gets us back to Genesis chapter 12. Because Genesis chapter 12 is God saying to the nations, I'm going to do this thing my way. Um, you're not going to do it by human self-achievement. You're going to do it by my initiation with this group of people that's in time going to yield something like the day of Pentecost. So all these things are organically organically linked. Yeah. Any other questions? That was fun. You know, anything else?
what time is it? Oh, yeah, we got plenty of time to get to um, wherever. Uh, so, seed, land, a relationship. Uh, Genesis chapter 18. I, I just want to go through this quickly. Um, again, we don't have, maybe some of us do, but this sense of deep familial connection. Um, I mean, I, I would have, I, I don't know. I would have given up on Lot a whole long time ago compared to the ways in which Abraham continually rescues his nephew who seems to be a bit of a lughead. I don't know how else to describe him. Um, you know, he, yeah, he gets captured and Abraham has to go and get, you know, release him from being captured. Then he sets up a tent outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember this? So he sets out a tent outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in the next chapter, he's got roof beams. That's a kind of fun thing that you read. In other words, he's not in a tent anymore. He's in a proper house inside Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God uh, decides in his righteousness that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a kind of flood narrative again. But God promised he's never going to do that to the whole world. But he never... He never promised anything per se about particular cities. <laughs> Ask Nineveh uh, and Tyre. Um, and as God would say in the prophets, do you remember Shiloh? The tabernacle used to be in Shiloh. Um, go try to find Shiloh now. It's gone. I took care of Shiloh. Um, so you have that kind of movement. And Sodom and Gomorrah comes under the crosshairs of God's judgment. And uh, what does Abraham do? He does what, I mean, I, this, these are my people, so I can joke about this. He does what any, you know, uh, Middle Eastern businessman would do. Starts to bargain and haggle. Have you seen this? I mean, I, I've got, I've, I've seen it in the Middle East. It's amazing, right? Um, so, Lord, if I find 50 people who are righteous, will you not do this? Okay, deal. And what does, what does Aram do? He's like, I think I overshot. Um, let's, let's go down. And he works all the way down to what? I think five, 10 or 5, whatever the number was. And God says, if you can find it, if you can find anyone who's righteous, then, then I will, I will relent. Which, by the way, is part of God's character as we'll see in the book of Exodus. God relents, uh, in the face of repentance. It's his character to do so. If left on autopilot, when God has his judgment, uh, sights set on something, um, we do know that God is willing to pull the trigger. And we see that in the cross, ultimately. But we also know that God is willing to put the gun down, isn't He? He's willing to put the gun down when people repent and turn to Him. Um, so you have that sort of borrowing back and forth, and, and, and there's no show. There's nothing there. Um, so God says, well, I'm going to destroy them. Uh, you better go and get Lot. So what does God do? God in His kindness sends these two angelic figures into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and He uh, gets Lot and his family and and his son-in-laws who are just sound like the worst son-in-laws in the world. They thought, and, and what does Lot tell them? He says, well, these ain't, you know the scene, they try to get these two men and they wanted to rape them in the city village. I mean, it's an awful scene. Um, and then uh, and, and Lot says um, he offers his own daughters, which I think ends up coming back in the narrative to, to, to bite Lot in the long term. Um, but he, it's, it's just a horrible scene. It's chaos. It's what sin does. It's chaotic. Um, and the angels... Uh, force, they protect, they blind the people, and then they get a uh, lot and them out of there. And there's this verse, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but there's a verse that says, and lot lingered. I mean, we're talking about fire and brimstones hailing down, and he lingered. 
It's like the most reluctant convert in the world. Lingered. And the angels sort of yanked him out. The son-in-laws thought that he was joking. Um, I mean, it's it's a horrible scene. But God rescues Lot and his family. And of course, you know what happens to Lot's wife. Um, she turns around and she, and which we must assume is in an act of yearning for what she was losing. Um, she turns to a pillar of salt. I mean, the scene is awful. Nevertheless, Abraham's offspring, his family, his, the oversight of his, of his patronage is being preserved in an act of God's grace. And there's a verse here that I wanted you to see. Um, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, verse 23. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities. Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And so it was, verse 20, this is what I want you to see, that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities and the land. I remember reading that narrative maybe five, six years ago now when that that verse jumped out at me. And God remembered Abraham. When's the last time we, see, we saw God remembering? Um, back in, in the flood narrative, God remembered Noah. And now God's remembering not Lot. I mean, Lot is, Lot is a mess. God's remembering the covenant that he made with Abraham. That's why Lot is preserved. Because God remembered Abraham and the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his family and his lineage, his offspring. That, I believe, has significant gospel ramifications for us. Um, what, what, is our, what was Lot's hope of salvation? His hope of salvation was not his own righteous efforts or his good religious instincts. Or his, I guess, incredible business skills that allowed him to go from someone that was on the outside of the camp of the city in a tent to now in the city center, uh, a well-known figure within, I don't know, the political system of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Lot was saved from the fire and the brimstone because God remembered Abraham. And I, I think that's a significant gospel thing for you and for me. What, what's our hope? Um, and I think this you find this, by the way, in the New Testament, the way the New Testament frames the significance of the atonement. What's our hope? Um, our hope is that God remembers Jesus. <laughs> he, he remembers the covenant, that eternal covenant that He entered into with His Son, that His Son would be the means by which He would redeem the world. And those who are in Him, like Lot was in Abraham, and because Lot was in Abraham, Lot was safe. God remembered Abraham. And God will remember uh, us because He remembers His Son. I think that's a really significant sort of covenantal point. And how does this whole narrative with Abraham move? It moves toward that scene, that horrific scene at Mamre. I mean, at, um, at um, uh, Moriah, Mount Moriah, not Mamre. That was, the, that was another scene with the oaks. Now, at Moriah, where he's willing to offer his own son in an act of faithfulness before the Lord. Um, 
And what does God say at the end of that narrative? I see now that you believe me. I mean, this whole, and we're on this from Hebrews 11, this whole journey of Abraham is this journey and testing of faith. Now, what does faith mean? Faith means even in the face of something like offering your own son, that you believe that what God has promised is true, even when it seems to human rationality and reason that that cannot be the case. There, there cannot be a way out of this. And yet what faith says is, despite my current circumstances, even when they're the most awful that they can be, despite my current circumstances, I can believe and trust in the promises of God. Because who is God in the book of Genesis? He's the one who creates and he's the one who redeems. So Lord, in your mercy, I pray that you'll give us um, insight and deep appreciation for a book like Genesis that's really a challenge. There's some strange stuff in there, God. Um, But we're grateful that you've given us this book to remind us that you are the creator and that you are the redeemer. You remembered Abraham, you remembered Noah, and we know, O Lord, that you will remember us because you remember your son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.